Well, it's been my privilege to be away for the last two weeks uh, from the pulpit um, and letting others, uh, very competent and talented, godly people, uh, be here. And so I've been fed uh, for the last two weeks. Had the privilege last week of going back to Atlanta, the church where I uh, was at previously before uh, coming here and had a chance to uh, spend some time with some men in the church doing a conference and just was a a great time catching up with uh, old friends. Um, But I will tell you, uh, after two weeks away, I, I miss being with you. And that is not the stuff that I say for the sake of trying to hopefully get brownie points with you. I just missed you, really did. And so it is good for my soul to be back here um, with you this morning. Now we're continuing a series, and that series is entitled The Mission. We're down to the last two weeks. We've got this week and the one to follow. And this week right here, we'll talk about a passage that is probably one of the two most familiar parables that Jesus shared. Those that would not consider themselves to be followers of Christ would certainly have a basic understanding of this parable and certainly would have heard the basic parts of it from time to time. It's a story we all love. And it's a story that uh, in many ways uh, we could pick and choose to be any one of the characters that's involved. And I think it's part of why Jesus shared it. Now, in this series, we've gone a couple of different places. We said that God uses the found to reach the lost. We declare God's fame and reflect his glory. We seek restriction, but Christ offers freedom. The religious look down, but Jesus looks up. We treat people the way we see people. And last week we said this, lost people matter to God. Now, we've been using an illustration that goes uh, with this all along, and it's of, of a railroad track, if you will, that there are two um, aspects of us living on mission. We talked about two legs as well, and the right leg, we said, is seeking the, the fame of God, that with this right here, everything in us is desiring that God would be seen as he is for who he is with all of his goodness, grace, glory, holiness, etc. And this leg over here is also simultaneously pursuing the freedom of man. And that both of these tracks lay down our, help us to get our direction we're trying to go, or it gives us the most balanced walk in life, seeking the glory of God and the freedom of man. Both of these things are what Jesus calls us to. Both of these things are what Jesus lived out in perfection. We said that there is one mind we want to have, that is the mind of Christ. There are two passions that we want to have, which is, God's fame and man's freedom. And then there are three questions we ought to be asking ourselves on a regular basis in order to stay on mission. Question number one is where do I need to be set free so that I can passionately pursue God's fame and man's freedom? What areas do I need to be freed up in on a personal level so that I can passionately pursue those two things? Question number two is how can God use me right now where I am to spread his fame? Not waiting for that to happen when he gives me X number of gifts or a certain level of exposure before that. How can he use me right now where I am in order to spread his fame? And then how can God use me right now where I am to set people free? Today, we look at the heart of Jesus as it pertains to sinners coming to repentance. Now, in life, I think it's true that we celebrate what we fight for. We will celebrate that which we make an investment into and actually fight for something to happen. Have you ever had a child that just could not grasp the concepts of math? 
and you worked your tail off with that child and you labored, you prayed, you, you stud, extra study sessions, but you as a parent invested everything that you had and then the time finally came and the score came back and the result of that score was an 80. And knowing this child had struggled all along to get it, what did you do as a parent? Did you say, golly, you're a worthless piece of scum? Or did you do what 99.9% of parents do with an 80 with a child that's struggling? Woohoo! We celebrate what we fight for. How about not just one class, but how about an entire graduation, be it from college or high school? And no, I'm not going to go back below that because I think it's just gotten silly, all the things that we have graduations for. Graduating from year four of your life. When we graduate from high school, there is a celebration that takes place. When we graduate from college, there is a celebration that takes place. We had to fight. We had to go get a job in order just to be able to pay the tuition. We had to do everything we could just to get by. And when we finally crossed over that threshold, we celebrate. We dance at a wedding, do we not? That reception is fun. Oftentimes in a reception after I have done the, the, uh, the, the, the ceremony, right before we exit, so the bride and groom have left uh, over here, and so right before I dismiss the crowd, I typically give just a little brief patch of information. Thank you for being here. You've put yourself firmly behind this couple in support, and, and now's the time that we get a chance to, to uh, pray for them, intercede for them, even offer them unsolicited advice, et cetera, things like that. And then I get a chance to say... And then I quote it down there because there's a lot of folks that want it read in this particular way. We are now all invited to the reception where I am told we are going to have great amounts of ridiculous fun. We celebrate this wedding that was fought for. Because there were times in that relationship in which it looked like it may have been going south, but they decided that relationship was worth fighting for. And so they worked through the conflict and they finally made it to that day. And on that day, we celebrate our sports teams. Not that I would know <laughs> anything about this, but I've been told that there are others who celebrate their sports teams. When there is some type of championship that is won, whether that's at a city level or a county level, a regional level, a state level, or maybe even a national level. When that team finally gets to the end, the final whistle is blown or the horn goes off or whatever signals the end of that game, there is this celebration that takes place amongst fans, amongst teammates. And you think back, all of the... The players do all of the hard work that went into it, and it's time to celebrate because we fought for this. We didn't want to wake up at 5 in the morning. We didn't want to run the extra sprint. Didn't want to make the extra lap. But in the end, we fought. We had to overcome adversity, etc. We celebrate what it is that we fight for in life. And this is what Jesus is telling us in this story, is that there is a celebration that God has because he has fought for the souls of people. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Luke chapter 16. We're going to read from verses 11 all the way through, I'm sorry, Luke 15, 
verses 11 all the way through the end of the chapter. If uh, you can't handle staying this long, that's fine. If you're physically able, would you stand in honor of God's word as we read? And he, that is Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days uh, later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And yet no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead uh, and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You may be seated. Now, Todd brought this out when he preached last week, but we've got to keep all three of these stories together in Luke chapter 15. So there is the story of this sheep that has this one sheep that has wandered and gotten away and the shepherd goes and chases after it. And then there's the story of these coins and this woman has lost one coin now, just a couple of things to point out about the two things that will clearly fit in, and all three of these stories have, in one sense, the same message, but they all have a distinct way in which they tell it. And there's also a little nuance to each one of these stories as well. Notice that it was one one-hundredth of value as it pertains to the sheep. 
It was one-tenth as it pertained to the coin. And now we're about to talk about one-half. That which is valuable. Now, Jesus is sharing a story that's designed to point us to the celebration that the Father takes in this. But just look at the progression of value as it goes along. There's a sheep, there's a coin, and then there's a person. The joy of recovery is going to drive each of these stories. It is the joy of something that had once been amongst us, had had made its way off, and is, is now being brought back in. It's the joy of that recovery that takes center stage in each one of these stories. Now, you notice the first two is about the pursuit of the individual. This last one is not about the pursuit of the individual. In these two, the pursuer is going to actively go after with a passionate pursuit of that which is lost. Over here, the individual is going to wait patiently and sit back. What is driving this, though, we cannot miss this. Go back in your Bibles. It won't be up on the screen. So go back just to the first three verses of chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Tax collectors. Collectors. Sinners, all drawing near to the person of Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. (laughs) This man, he receives sinners and he eats with them. Keep your finger on chapter 15, but go all the way back to chapter 5. And this is where Levi is called. Verse 27, after after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he arose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors And others reclining at the table with them, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Not much has changed since chapter 5. And Jesus, noticing what is taking place with them over in chapter 15, sees their actions. And so now he tells a story that is given directly to the religious arrogant. Please don't miss that. Jesus is speaking directly to those who do not think they need him, who look down as they walk through life in condescension at the pathetic nature of others. Jesus, remember, looks up. His eyes are out on the horizon. The religious, however, looking down. And Jesus now gives a story to those who are looking down. And he starts out by saying there's this sheep that gets Lost, he wanders off, and so the shepherd leaves the 99 on the hill, and he goes after that one in the same way that you would chase after any one of your children that were lost. I have 165 children in my home, and if one of them goes off, I assure you what I'm not going to do is say, eh, you know what, I still got five. I'm going to go after that one. What is true physically is certainly true spiritually. When one wanders off, my prayer life feels it. 
And at times it feels like there may be a disproportionate amount of prayer given to the one wandering and the others who are faithfully there. And he tells about this coin that has made its way off. Jesus is sharing this passionate pursuit. And in my head, this is not scripture doesn't say this, in my head, I just think that Jesus, as he's telling the story, is looking, saying, do you, do you get it? Do you see it yet? The joy of the person who goes out, the joy of pursuing, the joy of finding, but in particular, the joy of reclaiming is hard to put into words. I don't know what your relationships have looked like throughout your lifetime. I don't know if you had a friendship that was on the brink years ago. I don't know if you grew up and you had a friend that you would consider to be your best friend in sixth grade and something happened in seventh grade. And the two of you drifted. And it wasn't even just really a drifting. It was an intentional parting and there was hurt and you were hurt and you hurt them and et cetera. But something happened in the ninth grade. And something happened that brought the two of you back together and this joy of this friendship took place. I don't know if you had a girlfriend in college. And as you thought about your futures and what might be compatible, might be incompatible, and the two of you decided to part ways, be it because you're going to study in different locations or you're just headed different directions or whatever, and then circumstances brought you back together and there's that rekindling and that relighting. I don't know if you've had a child that left for a season. And they left under not the best of circumstances, saying some things to you and about you, and it was brutally painful. And then there came a time in which they came back and knocked on the door. And they began to work through it again. I don't know if your marriage was on the brink and it got brought back. When there is the reclaiming, when there is restitution, when there is... That joy is worth celebrating. Jesus said, do, do you see it? But they don't. Because the religious can't look up and see the joy of reclaiming things. They can only look down in condescension as they walk all the way through life. So Jesus tells a story that's particularly to them. And how does that story go? I don't have to point out a whole lot for you, but you are going to be very impressed. There are going to be seven points, and all of them start with an R. I don't, I hardly ever do that, but the way it was laid out in a, in a resource called the Bible Outline, that's a resource that I got a chance to look at, just, it just makes outlines, and they went, that's really good. I'm going to steal it from them. So credit goes to them for this, not to me. In verses 11 through 16, you're going to see rebellion. This is where the son goes to his father. Now, let's just paint the picture for you a little bit. The younger son had no drive whatsoever to know the father. None. What he does, in fact, is he goes to the father and he says, I would like for you to give me my portion of the inheritance. Since there were two children, the older child would have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger child would have gotten one-third of the inheritance. That's because the oldest got a double portion of the rest of the siblings. And so the younger son goes to him. He says, I want my inheritance now. Now, it was not uncommon. Uh, wasn't, I'm sorry, it wasn't so uncommon that, that a child would not go to their father and ask for their inheritance. But it, it was unheard of for a child to go to their parent and say, I want that inheritance right now. 
What he in essence is saying to the father is, I would like to sever our relationship to such a degree that it is if you are dead to me and I am dead to you. So go ahead, give me what is mine as if he earned it, as if he did something for it, as if it was his to take to begin with. It was the father's that he had in order to give to it. But give me what is mine. You go your way, I'll go my way. And the father looks at him and says, okay. Now, based on the way this story ends, I can't imagine the father here in this story is excited to hear this news from his son. But the son asks for this, and he goes on. Now, what would have happened in this particular culture is all sorts of fascinating things that have been written um, about this. Um, if this son were to have done this and then were to made his way back into society, making his way back into society, he would have been immediately shamed and humiliated by the crowd because they would have come to the defense of the father um, in this. So the father is intentionally allowing himself to look reckless and foolish. So the son takes it. And then he tells us in the story that he goes and he spends it frivolously. He actually wastes what it is that came to him. Notice it says in verse 13, it was not many days later. So after he gets what is his, it would have taken a couple of days to get the affairs together, to do the accounting, etc. It would have taken a little while for that to happen. And so when he gets it, he then takes off immediately after receiving this. He takes a journey and notice it says he goes into a far country, a far place that is, is the culture that he grew up in, he couldn't stay in. Not live the lifestyle that he wanted to live. He had to leave the father and go to a foreign place in order to live the kind of life that he wanted to live. So he goes. It's a far country. Notice what it says next. There he squandered, great word, his property in reckless living. The father appears reckless. The son is reckless. The father appears foolish. The son is foolish. So he takes what he has and he wastes it. He squanders it on wild living. We know a portion of that would have been sex, drugs, and rock and roll is the best way to say it right here. And when he had spent everything, it tells us in verse 14, a severe famine arose in the country. Now, there is the natural consequence that he is facing of his living because he was not wise, he was not prudent, he did not put stuff back, he was not prepared for a rainy day. And so when this natural famine takes place in the land, God's sovereignty, he is not prepared for it. And so he wastes all he has and now he has nothing to fall back upon. Now, please don't miss this. This is one of the greatest blessings that could have happened to this young, rebellious, prodigal son. One of the worst things that could have happened is that he would have wisely managed his money all along and just partied a little here and there, thinking that somehow or another this brought him the most amount of joy and satisfaction in life. And never really getting into a place where he was in so far over his head that he became miserable. He spends it all, he wastes it, a famine comes in, 
And now he has serious needs. So he went and he offered himself to the highest bidder. And the highest bidder took him. And perhaps in this case, it may have been the first bid that he came across. And he begins to work by feeding the pigs. This is how we know this was a Gentile job that he had. There would have been no Jew that would have had this line of employment. So he's working for some foreign person who serves a foreign God. And he's working with the pigs. And one day after working, he notices that what the pigs have to eat looks awfully good to him. So the first 16 verses are all about his rebellion. And notice the very last part of 16 says that no one gave him anything. He was alone He was destitute. He was in the best possible place that he could be. Verses 17 through 19 tell us about his realization. But when he came to himself, he thought, how many of my father's employees live like this? I remember from the time I was a kid, I remember walking out and, and watching how my father had interacted with those who worked under him. He always treated them well. And they always had meals put before them. They never had to do what I'm doing right now. You know what? What I need to do is to go back to my dad. But I've already told him that I want to be dead. And I've already told him that I want him to be dead to me. I've already severed the relationship, so I can't go back as a son. But what I can go back as one of his hired workers because he's really good to those who work under him. And and working under him as a hired worker is better than being over here. So he realizes conviction happens. He is miserable in his current life, and he contemplates So then, listen, he chooses, volitionally, he chooses now to make his way back home. All the while, the father has been sitting back. And what I think Jesus is trying to tell us right now is this. Most of the time, it's a really good idea to go on the offensive posture and to pursue, passionately pursue that which is lost. Sometimes, when individuals have not yet reached the place of misery in their life, thinking that what they're doing actually makes sense, sometimes the best thing to do is to sit back and let them reach the point of true misery. But I know how hard that is for a parent to hear. That's great in theory. But when your child is the one who has not yet reached the place of misery but continues to go down this destructive path, the last thing a parent wants to do is to wait. So here comes the question for us parents. Do we trust that God loves our kid as much as we do? Or do we think that I love my kid more than God does? And if I'm honest with you, there are times more than I want to admit in which I wonder if I love my kid more than God does. The first part of verse 20 says that he starts the journey home. The second part of verse 20 all the way through 21 
is now going to describe this union that takes place. He rose, came to his father, first part says, second part, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. You've heard us say this before, this word compassion is not something that means merely an emotional tie, not just being stirred emotionally. It's emotion that drives to action. That's what that word is. His, son, his father saw him and he felt compassion. And how do we know he felt up? Because he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And right now when Jesus is telling the story to the religious leaders, they're saying, this is so silly. Because no man runs like this. No man of any worth and value in, 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 the, in the culture is going to make himself appear this foolish in the process. No man is going to hike up his skirt, hop down, and run after a son who is coming home. A son who has already given his father the bird and has already told him, I want nothing to do with you. No father would do this. See, Jesus is driving at something, <clears throat> excuse me, for them. Your vision of God is way too small. God does not mind appearing foolish because God is never foolish. God does not ap mind appearing as though he is reckless because he's never reckless. His father runs and he embraces him. And he kisses him. And the way that it's written in the original language is he embraces and embraces and embraces and kisses and kisses and kisses. The father is unrestrained in his response to his son. And so then the son begins to share what it is that, <clears throat> that uh, he had rehearsed and he had practiced. And so he, he knows he's not going to be able to come back as a son. And my, my guess is this son right now in this story that Jesus is telling, my guess is this son is, is a little bit shocked and a little bit confused as to what's taking place because he knows what he has asked for. He knows what he has pursued. He knows what he has given up. And now the father is coming to him and responding in a way that he's not quite expecting. So he starts to go in with his speech. <laughs> Father, I have sinned. He takes personal responsibility. He doesn't lay the blame on anyone else. I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And you remember he was going to go on after that, but then the father interrupts right away. And I'm, I'm wondering if he puts his hand over his son's mouth and he looks over and he says to the servants, go and get the robe. When there is repentance, there is immediate clothing. And for one who was, now far, who was far from God is now brought near to God and he now wears the clothing of the father. Bring it. And put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. Now, the father had been fighting all along because I don't think there's any possible way we can read this story and imagine a father who is sitting back in a posture like this on his son, but rather a posture who had a, a father who had a posture like this all the time that his son was gone. Oh, God, bring him home. 
God, protect him. God, hold him. God, restrain the evil that he's going to get himself into. And God, would you please, before too long, make him miserable. A party is thrown. He invites everyone to the party. And then the older brother catches wind of what's taking place. He's just passing by. And he hears off in the distance this wild, charismatic celebration. Does anybody know what's going on up there? And one of the servants comes out. Dude, it is the greatest day. Your brother, the one that was dead to us all, he's back and he wants to be back. And the father embraced him and hugged him and kissed him. And now we're celebrating because he once was dead, but now he's alive. Dude, come on. My dad did what? The younger brother wanted nothing to do with the father because the younger brother thought something different about the father. He didn't see him as he really was. He knew he was good to people. He knew that he was a good man, but he wanted nothing in terms of the relationship with him. Guess what? The older brother was with him all along, and the older brother wanted nothing of a relationship with him either. The older brother didn't know him either. The older brother had been working hard for him believing that somehow or another he could improve his status with the father, that he could improve his standing. But the older brother wanted no more of a relationship with the father than the younger brother did. And so with the younger brother, who was reckless and foolish and squandered everything he had, is embraced by a God, by his father, who looks foolish and appears reckless in the process. His son just can't handle it. What about us who have followed the rules? You're telling me we're not going to be in better standing? I have not squandered like that. I have not wasted like that. I have been a good steward of everything that you've given to me, Father. Where's my reward? Now notice what he says. You wouldn't even give me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. It wasn't about celebrating with the Father. You have done nothing for me, is in essence is what the older brother is saying. <laughs> and then Jesus ends the story in one of the most bizarre ways. Have you noticed that there's no resolution to this story? The father just goes to his son and he begs his older son to understand and to hear Oh, son, I hope you'll see this and understand this. I had a son, one half of the most prized of all of my possessions. You, you're not an asset. You, that which my, half of my heart was torn out, and now it has been brought back. And I'm going to celebrate. Story is over. And the listeners are left with this lingering question. What will you do? What comes naturally for you? Do you 
find that your heart longs to celebrate when sinners come to repentance? Do you find that you have this deep-seated longing for others to know and enjoy the Father, or does your heart just long for more rules to be followed? Do you want America to be moral, or do you want America to bow the knee of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Do you want your company to have more rules that are followed by people? Or do you want more people in your company to come to know who the Savior of the universe is? Do you want better behavior? Or do you want sinners coming to repentance so that there can be a celebration? Can I tell you this? Please hear me. There is never going to be a celebration over more morality. But there's going to be a lot of celebrating over sinners who come to repentance. Because God doesn't need your behavior. He doesn't need your good works. They're like filthy rags. What God wants from you, what he is asking from you and for you, is that you might have a relationship with him. I'm over time, but I'm going to take it anyway. And I want to give you just three quick ways to pray for younger brothers and three quick ways to pray for older brothers. When I turned the notes in on Thursday, I'd only had praying for prodigals, so... It'll be up on the screen, but this is my fault for not getting the notes in uh, correctly and early enough. When praying for a younger brother, first, pray that rebellion would quickly lead to misery. Pray that active rebellion, intentionally walking away from God, would quickly lead to misery. That it would become so distasteful in their mouths, it would become sickening to them. Number two, pray that returning would be the only good option that they see. Returning to the Father would be the only good option that they would see. And then finally, number three, pray that rejoicing would be the fuel for pursuing. In other words, pray that they would hear the rejoicing that takes place from the Father and in the heavenlies, and that would be the fuel they have for pursuing other rebellious individuals. It won't be up on the screen, but let me give you the three ways to pray for the older brother. Number one, pray that self-righteousness would become empty and distasteful. Pray that self-righteousness would become empty and distasteful. Number two, pray that right relationship would become the prize. Not better behavior, not better thinking even, not better philosophy. Right relationship, relationship being restored. Pray that right relationship would become the prize that they are seeking. Number three, finally, pray that joy would become the driving force of their mission. Pray that joy would become the driving force of their mission. Wildwood, what do you fight for? Are you fighting for a better Tallahassee, a more law-abiding Tallahassee? Are you fighting for less drunks? Are you fighting for more people that would help little ladies cross the street? All those are good things. But I pray that would be a byproduct. I pray that we would fight for the souls of lost men and women who desperately need to know what it's like to meet with Jesus.
we all celebrate what we fight for.